Welcome to Karen Commons, a biblically-minded podcast highlighting the people, conversations, and ethos of Karen University. Many believe higher education is facing an existential crisis. While nonprofit and for-profit schools are battling issues of affordability, enrollment, and latent COVID realities, the need for Christ-centered, academically rigorous, and biblically faithful institutions of higher education remains. In the second part of their conversation, Dr. Todd Williams, president of Cairn University, and Dr. Alan Gelzo, American historian and senior research scholar in the Council of the Humanities and director of the Initiative on Politics and Statesmanship in the James Madison Program at Princeton University, discuss the history and future trajectory of Christian higher education, the genesis of their love of history, civics, and deep thinking, and the lasting value of a biblical worldview formation in the life of the student. Let's listen to their conversation now. Tying us back to the the state of Christian higher ed and Christian education in general, and how we as believers have the ability to use history and interact uh, as students of history to engage our culture, there's substantial pushback from both secular and Christian segments regarding the, the waning value of a college or university education. So how would both of you encourage students, uh, encourage parents and pastors and teachers to consider the lasting value of education, and then maybe as an addendum, consider the lasting value of a distinctly Christian education? How much time is consumed by charging a battery for a car? Mm-hmm. Do you regard that as a waste? Not in the least. No, because the battery is what's going to make the car run for as long as you need to have it run. Mm-hmm. A college education is like charging a battery. Mm-hmm. And the charge that you take can last you your whole life. It can be a life which is informed by inquiries of various sorts. It can be a life informed by poetry you have read and learned. I mean, I remember, granted, the teaching of English and poetry was not what I would have regarded as a priority at the old PCB. Yet, I remember very, very fondly Mrs. Carol Fink, Mm -hmm. who taught English, taught a number of English courses. I loved that distinguished lady. She was remarkable. And I have come away over the years still remembering over and over again the the poetry I encountered in her courses, and it's just become a part of me. I took quite a charge from my battery from that. And I think that what I would say to parents today is this unique four years at this unique moment in a person's life, when they're making this indefinable transition from childhood to adulthood, They are now more than a child, but they're not quite an adult. This incredibly formative and plastic moment of their lives, when that can be filled with that charge, it is like filling up the battery that they will run on for the rest of their lives. And I'm a testimony myself to how many different kinds of charge I took, even from from Mrs. Fink, 
and what I learned from her in English courses, which, of course, were not supposed to... I think some people were actually rather impatient that they had to take it. Why do I have to take this English course? I'm, I'm doing this other thing. I'm, I'm doing Christian ed or I'm doing something like that. And that was entirely the wrong way to look at it. That, yes, there's a vocational aspect to education that in some ways has always been. But much more than that, what happens in a college and university education has to be the preparing of a soul, has to be the preparing of a mind. Mm. And you'll only get one chance, really. You only get one chance to do it. And you've got to fill it up fully as much as you can. And my word to, to parents is, see education in exactly that way. Parents do such remarkable things for their, for their offspring and their raising of them. And one of the best things they can do for their raising of them is to make available that time, that window, in which to be formed and shaped by that which is, which is honorable, by that which is true, by that which is beautiful. What, is, what does the Apostle Paul say? St. Paul says, think on these things. Not just give them a thought every now and again. Be preoccupied by them. Meditate upon them. And these four years are the opportunity to do that and begin the patterns of that. That'll last for a lifetime. And for parents to see that and to be intentional about instilling that perspective in their children is important because in the day in which we live, you have sort of this weird convergence of things that actually work against that. You sort of have this, this sort of uh, preoccupation with the utilitarian. If it doesn't serve some economic end, it isn't, it isn't worthwhile, it isn't necessary. You also have the other side of it, which is a kind of overindulgent culture that works only on preferences. So if a, if a student doesn't like schooling, therefore education doesn't have any value for them. And that, I think the, the idea of saying, no, look, this is a formative time, as you so eloquently described, where there is much that can be done that will benefit someone for the rest of their life. Let's be intentional in instilling in our young people to make the most of that time, because it is not, it, it actually, and, and what you're doing is actually creating a uh, uh, hopefully instilling this this commitment to cultivate the life of the mind for the rest of your life. But you'll never be free from the kinds of obligations that come with parenting and employment and other kinds of things that will allow you the time that you have here. And students so easily take that for granted. It's why so many of our older students, uh, non-traditional students, you know, walk in and they, they refuse to take it for granted because they've actually crept down that path of life and say, now hold on a second, if you don't find value in these things. And, and so to fight back against the sort of, and as, as you said, vocation has always been a part of it. We want to make students ready for the marketplace. But if we only see it as utilitarian and we, and we only are catering to the preferences of individuals, uh, the, they only do what they like to do, neither one of those is really being intentional as a parent and, and thinking about the, the, the larger impact that can be had in someone's life by having a different perspective on education. And let's, and let's, let's be theological about this. God is not a job. That's right. God is not an income. God is beauty. When Jonathan Edwards wrote about the Trinity, he described the relationship between the persons of the Trinity as a relation of beauty. I mean, contemplate that. What goes on within the Godhead is the enjoyment of beauty. And we get, we poor limited human creatures, we get 
we get to taste a bit of that. And we get to look out the window and we get to see the cherry tree now as it's blooming in spring. And we get to reflect on words of beauty. Loveliest of trees, the cherry now is hung with snow along the bough and stands along the woodland ride wearing white for Eastertide. When you fill up a soul with that, there's no room in that soul for cheapness, lies, and evil. Dr. Gelzo, you wrote an article a couple of years back recounting a story in which, as a young grad student, you met Dr. Cornelius Van Til, a noted philosopher and theologian in the tradition of Warfield and Bavink. Uh, his teachings greatly influenced the likes of R.J. Rushduni, Greg Bonson, Francis Schaeffer, and others. In the article, uh, you wrote of sitting on a porch and asking Dr. Van Til, why did he decide to devote his life to the study of philosophy and the teaching of apologetics? In that article, his answer floored you. Could you tell us why? I went to pay this visit on, on Dr. Van Til. I had read his works. I had... <laughs> I had, I have to admit, had difficulty reading his works. You have to go slowly. They are profound. But I wanted to meet the man. I went to his home in Sheltonham. He met me, as he often met students who came to call with, on the porch with a rake in his hand. I was going to rake the leaves first before I would be admitted to his uh, inner <laughs> sanctum. Very gently done, of course, but mm -hmm. still, all right, that's fine. Price of admission. <laughs> Got in and talked to him, and I, in my cocky way, as a graduate student, was thinking, this is, this is going to be a real exercise in profundity. We're going to use so many big words, it'll make a dictionary's heart fail. <laughs> and I asked him the question, why did you get involved? Why did you commit yourself to this career in writing apologetics, in writing books about the philosophy of religion? And I was really expecting, I was sitting there grinning from ear to ear, waiting for this great philosophical outpouring that I could catch in my hat and take with me and show off. And Dr. Van Til, white-haired Dr. Van Til, son of a Dutch dairy farmer, Mm -hmm. sat there and said without missing a beat or batting an eye, why, to protect Christ's little ones. I could have cried. Because, for one thing, as soon as he said it, you knew exactly that he was right. That's what he was doing. And you also felt the rebuke of your own arrogance. Mm -hmm. That you, you thought... You thought like the, like the theological student Luther described once. You thought you were going to shine in your, the profundity of your wisdom. And at moments like that, Luther said, the student needs to reach back and feel his ears because there he will find growing a long, silky pair of donkey ears. <laughs> That's what I felt like. And I deserve to feel like that. And I have reminded myself always of what Dr. Van Til said, what is your task? Several weeks ago, in church, the children's choir sang an anthem. It was an arrangement using the tune from the slow movement of Dvorak's Ninth Symphony, the famous Going Home tune. Mm -hmm. 
But the words were, Who will feed God's lambs? And hearing these children's voices sing this, hearing these words, I'm sorry, the handkerchief came out. And, um, and I'm glad it did. I'm glad there was something there to be moved by it. But it reminded me, what are you doing? You are protecting, you are sheltering something immensely precious, Christ's little ones. When you think of little ones, you're thinking not just of little children, but you're also thinking of all those who are plain and simple of heart, those whose minds and affections lie just on the surface without complications. Think of people who have been wounded by life, who have been deserted, who have been wronged. Those are the little ones. And the calling of the scholar no less than the pastor. It's the protection of Christ's little ones. That means that you observe every word you say, you judge every word you say, is this protecting? Is this building the fence? Am I the shepherd who lies down in the gate and would give up his life for the sheep? Weigh everything you write, weigh everything you say, Will this build up? Will this cultivate? Will this protect? That is a constant reminder to me, and always Dr. Van Til's words come back to me. What are you protecting? You are protecting Christ's little ones. You have been given a charge. All right, maybe not a pastoral charge in the formal sense, but even as a historian, even as a teacher in a classroom, you have been given a charge. To protect. That simple response of Van Til's has been with me ever since and always will be. If you'll indulge me in the next question, in the article I'm referencing, you wrote this, when we no longer make ourselves the center of our desires, when we take our aim as Christian scholars, as college presidents, pastors, thinkers, to make perfect our wills, then and only then do I imagine that we will have any real effect on the world. Only when we have surrendered the notion of having an effect will we in fact have one. And only then will we begin to see that our real priority is not to change the world, to change our professions, to publish this or footnote that, but to protect Christ's little ones. So let me ask, in, in 2023, given what we've talked about at this point of our history, at this current culture that we exist in, do you see an increased responsibility of the church, of pastors, certainly of parents and educators, to guard Christ's little ones? I wouldn't say increased, because I don't think it's ever been less. Right. Well said. The words, make perfect your will, are borrowed from T.S. Eliot. Hmm. From the choruses from the rock and from murder in the cathedral. Two pieces which I encountered for the first time at PCB. Yeah, right. Me as well. Yeah, yeah. I still have my this, this volume of Eliot's writings. And I've come back to them over and over again, and especially that injunction, make perfect your will. In other words, decide the one thing that is needful, the one thing that must be done at all costs, at any price, 
understand what that thing is and surrender yourself to the doing of it. And whatever is asked of you, whatever opprobrium people heap upon you for doing it, it must bounce right off. You must make perfect your will not to be disturbed from that goal, always to keep that in view, not, not to faint, not to fail in the pursuit of it. Decide that you are going to be that servant of Christ and live that out and carry that out. Make perfect your will. And you may be asked to pay the price in Murder in the Cathedral. Thomas Beckett must pay the price. In the choruses from the rock, which are a tremendous commentary on 20th century culture, Make perfect your will. Do not be distracted. Do, do not allow the values of everyone around you in pursuit, as Eliot put it, of a thousand lost golf balls. <laughs> do not permit that to be a distraction. Where is your focus? Make perfect your will. When we do that, we recognize that it's not our wills. It's not our standing. It's not our status. It's only when we shed those things and the pursuit of those things in fact, we really will have that impact. That kind of singular focus and singular vision is essential to Christian education's thriving because the distractions, the narcissism, the mission drift, the, the desire to be relevant, the desire to be uh, on board, all of those things are the, the kinds of distractions. The desire, which I think is the most poisonous and toxic desire, the desire for respectability. Yes, exactly. The desire to walk through the marketplace and have everyone compliment right. you. Right. And then you remember the rebuke of the Gospels when men will praise you, what are they doing different from what they, they did for the false prophets? Right. Mm. Then, then, then the condemnation comes into you, and then you hear the words of Nathan the prophet, Thou art the man. What a, what a moment that was. What a moment of condemnation. Mm -hmm. David is just going along with it. Mm -hmm. Nathan is saying to him, oh, this is like the man with the little ewe lamb. Isn't that terrible? Oh, yes, David says, terrible. That man should be dreadfully punished. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thou art the man. <sighs> yeah, but that is not the word we want to hear. The word we want to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant. What is required of a steward? I mean, this is what the Gospels, this is what the New Testament asks us. What is required of a steward? That he win a Pulitzer Prize? That he be entertained at the White House? Uh, that he have a nationally syndicated uh, cable network show? No, I don't recollect any of that in the New Testament, sorry. It is required of a steward that he be found faithful. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And if it's writing books about history, do them as though the whole world depended upon it. If it's bricklaying, do it as though the whole world depended upon it. Because I always remember that line from that wonderful movie, Chariots of Fire, 
You can peel a spud to the glory of God if you peel it to perfection. Make perfect your will. So to you both, as we wrap up our discussion, maybe the point of this entire conversation could be summed up in this question. How does thinking wisely and biblically about history and about education help Christians to better serve the church and to serve our culture? To think in that way is to think as a servant. And thinking as servants is something which has become very foreign, not only to the way we behave in our culture, but even the way we behave in the church. We sometimes ask this question, what are the marks of the church? I remember a very astute friend of mine, Daryl Hart, wrote many years ago an article in which he said, you know what the true marks of the church are for the modern church? An uplifting sermon, fast-paced music, and lots of parking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought, oh, tis true, tis true. If we are servants, if we learn to be servants, if we learn, first of all, to be servants of what has been revealed, that's where Christian education begins. If we learn in that process to serve each other, and in serving each other, I mean not just uh, adopting a kind of obsequious attitude. Sometimes serving each other is, oh, not to put too fine a point on it, putting up with people. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't sound very elegant, but it's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, 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 when Jesus girded himself around and took the towel and proceeded to wipe their feet, of course, Peter was the one who was objecting. What was, what was the Lord trying to teach him? That even despite what you're saying, I am still going to serve you. Yeah, we put up with people. Sometimes we lead people who don't want to be led. Sometimes we teach people who don't want to be taught. Sometimes we try to illumine people who don't seem to have much interest in elimination. We don't do it because we're going to get a grade for it. We do it because we must do it, because we're called to do it. That's real servant. That's the, the servant who educates. And developing that patience and that humility, that's a long-term process. And um, Todd will be the first to tell you that I am not there. (laughs) I know I'm not, all right? And people haven't been shy about reminding me of that. And I have to say to all of them, thank you for reminding me of that. It's good to know. But the desire to exercise a perspective that is wise and careful and humble and right, I think, uh, you know, as we pointed out, just in terms of historical figures, they're flawed, they fail, they make mistakes. Uh, the issue is, are we living intentionally with regard to that? Are we seeking to do the best uh, that we can, as, as, you, uh, as you were stating in reference to uh, the Eliot quotes? The, the idea uh, that we would take seriously the work that we've been given to do and to be willing to set aside our own egos and accomplishments and achievements and be poured out as a drink offering in the work that we've been given to do is, is an important perspective and I think one that, that we need. And I, I think that we are, as we always are as Christians, swimming against the tide with regard to those values and sensibilities, but they are no less our obligation because of that. And uh, we have to be persistent. A tide of self-advertisement, a yes. tide of self-seeking, a tide of narcissism, a tide of arrogance. Mm-hmm. And the temptation is 
always to to take a dip from all those and drink it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have to fight against. Mm-hmm. So I come back to the, the words that Haddon Robinson preached on those many years ago. Who at the end of the day, we can only say that we have been servants. We have only done that which it was our duty to do. Fantastic place to end our conversation. Dr. Williams, Dr. Gelzo, I am grateful for your time and your dedication to wise and winsome thinking, excellence in scholarship and leadership, and for making much of Christ by faithfully endeavoring to guard his little ones. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you.